yeah, again, thank y'all for gathering with us. Let's open our Bibles uh, to Galatians chapter 4. Today, uh, we're going to finish the chapter by looking uh, again at Paul's argument. I think that if there's anything we've learned through 11, now 11 weeks in Galatians, is that Paul's really making one argument, right? Uh, salvation is not by your performance, by the works of the law. Uh, it is by grace alone, uh, through faith in the finished work of Jesus. And even that faith is God's grace to you. Uh, but what we see is that this argument is, and really the entirety of Scripture, I believe, presents this, is that uh, salvation, transformation, and restoration are all fulfilled by way of God, keeping His promise to uphold both sides of the covenant that He made with Abraham all the way back in the early part of Genesis, right? Like we often think when we think about the gospel, we think, well, the good news, we we knew nothing of it. They knew nothing of it until Jesus came on the scene. No, every moment, even I would argue, all the way back in the garden at the fall, God, he he says, hey, here's the consequences of your sin. But then he says, hey, uh, he tells the serpent, he tells Satan, he says, man, uh, there's uh, an offspring is going to come and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to what? He's going to crush your head, right? And so we see it all the way back in Genesis is this is what God is doing. This is not plan B. That it begins with God's grace and it, uh, man, grace carries us all the way through. And so let me just quickly just share what I mean by salvation, transformation and restoration man, and salvation. I believe that Paul and he's just been hitting on this over and over. We are justified by the fulfillment of the promise. As I said all the way, I believe, back in week one, you bring nothing to the table but your sin. And then secondly, we are transformed by this same promise. We are transformed and made more and more into the image of Jesus by the promise. God, Jesus says, man, I'm leaving you, but it's better that I leave because it, it, when I leave, I'm going to send the helper to you, the Holy Spirit. He's going to come and, and no longer will you have to go to the temple to be in the presence of God. Actually, the Spirit will reside in you. The Spirit is sent to us. The Spirit resides in us and continues the work of God's grace, not by our own hands, but by its work in us as we are continuing. As we say, you you have been saved. You are being saved. This transformation, in other words, we use for it is sanctification by the power of the Spirit in your life. And so let me just say two things in regards to this transformation. First, I shared this last week, transformation is a process, right? We want an event, but transformation, as we see and as we know in our lives, is this process. Oftentimes, we don't think it's going quick enough, and sometimes we're like, hey, I feel like I'm drinking through a fire hydrant. It's going too quick. But God in His grace, He, man, is, he is leading us and, and, and transforming us in His time and by His power. But I think that brings up the other idea in this transformation. If it's not up to us, then do we even have to do anything? And I think there's a big difference between us pursuing holiness versus performance. You see, the pursuit of holiness, which is what we should do, in light of what we have received, is not performance as long as the source of the pursuit is found in Christ and not your own ability. And then lastly, we see restoration. You see, while we are called to be ministers of reconciliation, we are called to live lives of mission that proclaims this good news of transformation from death to life. 
We look forward to the day. We long for the day when Christ returns and makes all things new, do we not? You see, these truths need to be in front of us on a daily basis. It's not just each and every Sunday when we open Galatians, we say, okay, now we're going to get the gospel this week. No, it's every, we need to have the gospel, I mean, in front of us on a daily basis, moment by moment. We need this reminder constantly. See, as a good news people, we both need to remember and proclaim the good news. This week I was, on Thursday, I, I really, this whole week, I've had a pretty rough week. Uh, over the last four months, I've been doing really well, and not in my own strength, but by God's grace in terms of my anxiety and depression. But this week, man, it just hit, and it was a really hard week. And on Thursday, I, I had I had a hard morning, and I go uh, to the gym, and I, I'm working out, and, and man, I, frustration and uh, anger and all the, like, it just, it makes you work out really well, right? Like, you work out a lot harder, and I was just getting, but I, I was, uh, I was, doing uh, box step ups and I was going, I, I was just praying and man, in the moment I told, Hey, like I was, it was just, uh, I was having a rough time. And I just, in that moment, God, I, I, God spoke to me and he just said, Hey, I see you. I know you. And I love you. It was like, it was right in front of my face where I was just like, man, I, you know, I wasn't posturing myself in a certain way. Like I, but God in that moment said, Hey, keep this in front of you. And it, it and man, I, I, I felt a rest and a relief. And then I had to go try to build a chicken coop and that didn't help. And, uh, it, 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 but it, I had to remind myself, I have to keep that in front of my face. That gives us hope. Reminds us of who we are and where our identity lies. And I remember as I was working out when I, when that hit, whenever I, I, I felt God just telling me that, man, I was like trying not to cry. I was like, I can't cry right now while I'm working out in the gym, right? Like people are going to look at me funny. Uh, and either th- they probably just think it's pain. Uh, but we need these truths to be in front of us. For we, as we saw last week in Galatians 4, know God because we are first what? We are first known by God. Therefore, let us not turn back to the enslavement, of Paul says, to elementary principles by way of observing and doing things that hold no true power or weight for our identities and lives in the kingdom. Paul is saying, hey, turn away from those things. Turn away from the works of the law, from your performance. Don't get wrapped up in it. And so with that, let's look now at Galatians 4, verses 21 through 26. I'll, I'll go ahead and show you, man, today's passage, I was talking to when we were praying earlier, today's one of those passages, it's kind of an odd passage in the midst of this letter, uh, to where uh, he's going to tell a story from the Old Testament, he's going to give a prophecy, and really that's in. So just working through it, just at, at times, maybe not, um, uh, it, it felt, it's, it's, it's just, it's been hard to work through, but uh, let, let's, let's just jump in. This is Paul. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Okay, so as we jump in, I want, I want to begin by sharing a story uh, about a conversation that Haley and I had around 10 or 11 years ago. 
So uh, I don't know if this is when we were, we were still dating or maybe we were engaged or maybe we were married by this time. I didn't tell her about this. Uh, uh, and so we, but or one day we were talking and, and uh, I made a comment that I thought would just be a part of small talk, but it turned into something far more intense than I would ever imagine. Now, it wasn't an argument, okay? Like it wasn't, like we didn't get in an argument, but it was a moment that felt a little more touchy than expected. You ever get in those moments? Like where you step in, you're like, oh, I got to get out of this, right? Like, what am I doing, right? Uh, and, and so what I do now, after this conversation now, I just keep it as a mental note because we're almost 10 years into marriage. And I just bring it up from time to time just to see her get riled up a little bit, okay? Y'all do that too if you've been married. You know, you have those things you're like, hey. Uh, and you just kind of throw it out there and then just like stand back. Um, maybe you don't. Uh, maybe we, I need counseling. <laughs> But I don't remember the actual context of the conversation. But what I said during the conversation, mostly joking, but really, I I think from my perspective in the moment, I was pretty serious. I told her, I said, Brenham is East Texas. (laughs) Like, and and by, I mean, East Texas, I mean, like, Banjo, East Texas, like, and, and, and this is my logic, okay? This is why I said that. Again, we were, I think we were just dating or maybe we were engaged. I hadn't been in Brenham very long. I didn't know, okay? <laughs> I don't, I've only been to East Texas a few times in my life. But the one thing I remember about it is in East Texas, when you get to East Texas, what are there a lot of? Not teeth. <laughs> tall, <laughs> tall trees, right? There are pine trees everywhere. And so that's what I remember from my childhood is like pine trees all over the place. And so when I started driving to Brenham, even as you start getting, like I started seeing pine trees, and I'm like, well... A plus B equals we must be in East Texas now, right? And that was my thought because, of course, pine trees couldn't grow anywhere other than East Texas. And so I think this because, again, I'm from the land of cedar trees and mesquite trees, and they don't get very big. Uh, and so I come in, and, and my, uh, th- I, I'm thinking nothing of a statement. But it was as if I had deeply offended Haley to the core of who she was. She immediately began to defend herself and say, Brenham was not East Texas, but Central Texas. And I was crazy forever thinking Brenham could be East Texas. And so what I do now is I just ever so throw it out there to press it and watch the fire light up in her eyes so I can laugh a little. But I've also had to concede that Brenham is not East Texas, but Southwest East Texas. (laughs) It's as far as we've made it. Ten years. The reason I state this is because, man, in life, we all have those things that trigger us to defense, do we not? There are things people can say that, man, maybe we think it attacks our identity. Maybe it attacks something we believe strongly in. Maybe, man, it's just something like someone says a word the wrong way. Or they do something the wrong way and you're just like, like, because we're, yes, let's be honest, we're all a little bit OCD. Some more than others, but you just can't handle it, right? And we have to, we feel like we have to correct it. We have to confront it. Man, we get a little upset by it. It's like nails on a chalkboard. Like we all have those things. You can think of those things. If you haven't, get ready. That's the first question on Wednesday at MC. What is one of those things? So I'll just go ahead and let you know so you can prepare uh, and get a gold star this Wednesday. Uh, but man, we have those. Like for me, you know, one of those things, and th- this is like, you know, when people say, hey, pastors only really work one day a week. Like, 
I mean, somebody in the room might say that from time to time to me, mostly joking. Uh, and we laugh about it. But, you know, because part of it is like, man, I, I've known. I'm like, hey, you're not totally wrong, right? But like for me, that's where Isaac is like, no, like I work more than one day a week, right? And I want people to know that. And some of that is because, man, I want people to know that. But some of it's tied into my identity. I don't want to be seen like that. You know, uh, also you know, for me, if someone says, uh, so again, I was raised in a family of cattle ranchers. You, we never use the word lasso in our life. That it, it, we it's a rope and you rope with it. It's not a lasso that you lasso things. And so when my kids say, hey, where's your lasso? I'm like, I don't own one. I own a rope. <laughs> and, you know, quit watching Sheriff Callie or whatever. Like, that's not it. You know, my mother growing up, if anyone said horsey, she would just stop them and be like, there's no such thing as a horsey. It's a horse. That's it. <laughs> that's not an animal you're talking about. But I think this especially holds true when there are things that we built our identity upon. And when they're tested, whether they're right or wrong, we fight to defend and protect them. My question, and I believe the question that Paul would have us wrestle with is whether or not these are things we believe about the gospel and salvation by way of promised grace, but we're actually, they're actually performance-based. They're traditions of man, and yet we're quick to try and protect and defend them. And we do this as a church, right? You know, maybe not so much here. Maybe here, actually. Like I even said earlier, do y'all want to move over here? And people over here were like, no, this is my seat. I sit here every Sunday. If someone walks in, you're a little upset because you're like, that's the only place God moves is in that seat right there. What am I going to do today? We live... I mean, specifically for us in an American Christianity that just says, hey, just be good. Or just say, you know, we carry uh, our faith or said faith. It's just a label. It's just something we ascribe to that we write down on the census, right? But you're just nominal. It's just a label you carry, but you haven't given your life to Jesus. And so when someone comes to you and say, hey, actually life is about your life being wrung out for the kingdom, you just don't like that. You want to go, I just want to go somewhere I can be comfortable on Sunday. Maybe it's you say, yeah, it's grace, but I have to prove something now. See, this is what Paul is pressing here at the beginning of our passage, beginning in verse 21. And, and, and what he does is he's going to pull us again into the story of Abraham that we've been walking through on and off since chapter 3. And he starts with the question, and really his question is, uh, are you who desire to be under the law, are you actually listening to the law? He's saying, hey, y'all say y'all want to be under the law and y'all want to follow the law. Are you listening to what you're saying? Do you understand even what you're saying? He's trying to relate to those seeking to live life under the law. He's trying to say that your argument for performance-based salvation falls in on itself. Because the law of God that is found in the Scriptures goes against the life you're trying to live out. You see, the law, which in, in Paul's time, when they talked about the law, it was the Old Testament, right? It was the book of the law, and it was considered to be the whole of the entire will of God. But what do we know about the law from Galatians? What do, I mean, what do we know about the law, even from the Old Testament, the law... If you want to fulfill it, you have to be perfect. And what we realize is we can't do that. 
It's not through us that that's accomplished, but also the goal of the law, and we've talked about this through this series, was only meant to point us to our desperate need for rescue. You see, the law always pointed to Christ as the avenue of promise by which it would be fulfilled, for it never makes the claim that it held the power to save through performance or adherence to it. In the Old Testament, you know, where we see Paul, what Paul writes, he says, man, all of your good deeds, every bit of the law you kept, he says, it's actually filthy rags. The word for filthy rags is scubalo, which is actually a profane word uh, that means the uh, poop, but way worse. That's exactly what it means. That's what Paul says. He says, man, all of your good deeds, everything you've tried to do to fulfill the law, But why is this the goal of the law? It's the goal is for us to realize that we can't keep it. But even, and I think Paul's like pressing here, he, even if you could, even if you kept every act of the law, God is about your heart. And pride is the cancer of external performance, is it not? Man, religiosity, pride, man, it eats that stuff. So Paul makes this argument, but in, to do that, he gives this example of Hagar and Sarah that we find in the Old Testament. And he, what he does, he uses this example to illustrate the mistake that the Galatians are and that we can even be guilty of making at times. If you remember, the Judaizers' argument towards the Galatian church was that, hey, it's great if you want to follow Jesus, right? But you also need to perform. Because unless you hold to both Christ and the works of the law, what they said was you can't be children of Abraham. And so what Paul shares is the story of Abraham's two sons. He says, man, through Abraham, two sons were born. One through a slave woman and one through uh, a free woman. And the goal of this example is to show that even in terms of Abraham's life, he says, hey, what what Paul's saying is one child came about the wrong way by performance and the other came about the right way through the promise. And so what happens in the story, if you read really it's Genesis 12 through 21, you see while Abraham was given this promise of a son, Guess what? Abraham's given the promise. Him and Sarah don't get pregnant immediately. Him and Sarah are already well up in years. And it's actually 15 more years after the promise that that Isaac finally comes. They were in their 90s when Isaac's born. That's a long time to wait in general. And then it's, you've already been waiting. You get a promise and then you have to wait 15 more years. Like excitement and patience are hard to reconcile, are they not? I mean, as kids, like on Christmas Eve, like your excitement and your patience for the morning, it's hard to reconcile and sleep. You just want to stay up. You toss and turn. You fight it. Every movement, movement you hear, you think is, is hooves on the roof, you know? Like it, it, it's this excitement. And man, to have patience and wait is a hard thing. And that's just one night. Try waiting 15 years for a far greater gift. 
And so in the midst of the waiting, what happens is Sarah decides, she says, hey, I'm going to help God out. And she brings her servant, she brings her slave, Hagar, to Abraham and tells him, he says, hey, you need to make an heir through the servant. We're going to help God out. You see, realize what's taking place here. Sarah, she still believes that God will fill his promise to them by giving them a son. But she feels that it's up to her to make it work. She, as one writer states, is attempting to fulfill the promise of God through the scheme of the flesh. So Abraham takes Hagar and a child named Ishmael is conceived. And Ishmael would grow up to be the father of a great nation. But it's not the nation of promise that God laid out when he called Abraham to follow him. Rather, God would fulfill his promise to Abraham and Sarah. He would give them a child, even in their own age, whose name would be Isaac. And Isaac would be the child of promise, whose lineage can be traced all the way to Jesus. You see, what Paul's wanting to show here is that the Galatians, in trying to add to the law, and the pro- it turned to add to the law, they're doing exactly what Sarah tried to do so long. They're seeking to fulfill the promise of God through the scheme of the flesh. And then, in this case, literal circumcision. Because you're going about it the wrong way. And we go about it the wrong way a lot of times, don't we? We know God has said, hey, God, you know, like uh, the other day when I was working out, God says, hey, I know you, I see you, I love you, I'm for you. And in the moment, that feels really good. But guess what? Not very long after that, I was like, yeah, but let me just create the right argument. Let me build out the right things. And then guess what? I'll win. God, I'll help you out. You know what that created? It only created more anxiety because I was like, I don't know what to say. I don't even know what to do. Then I had to build build a chicken coop. And I was like, I really, angles and letter math is not my forte, right? Like it just got worse. What Paul does, he continues by stating that one, he says, you can look at this story allegorically. He says, you can look at this story and you can see the deeper meaning. He says, really what this story is showing us is two different covenants. He says, one covenant, and I want you to hear this, is from Mount Sinai, and it bears children who who are to be slaves. And then he says, this is Hagar. And she, Paul describes, she says, she represents Jerusalem and the people in it, which that right there is an East Texas moment. You see, because forever, Mount Sinai was the place that the law came. It was a place where God gave Israel its identity. And what Paul is saying is saying, hey, if you believe in the law, if you're trying to be like, really what the law, the only thing the law does is enslave. And what he's pointing to, he says, man, all those who don't know Christ are enslaved. They don't know. Like, they're enslaved. They think they're children of Abraham, but they're not. They think they're children of promise, but they're children of performance. See, these would be the words that would set off any who believed in performance. Man, the Judaizers, when they hear this, man, it would set them off. Man, this is like Jesus says the same thing. And guess what? The religious leaders, they want to kill him. Stephen in in Acts, man, he says the same thing. And what do they do? They stone him. And when we hear this, what do we do?
think we can hear, hey, if you want to be a child of Abraham, man, rest in the finished work. And But we say, that sounds good, but what do I do? What you do is don't no longer live enslaved. Rather, Paul says, live in the Jerusalem above. Which again, sounds odd. Like, what is he talking about? No, it says, man, when we, man, when you are in Christ, you are seated with him in the heavenlies. He is, when he comes back, he's, man, there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, and new Jerusalem will come down, and we will reside with God forever. He says, man, your identity is not found in a place. Your identity is not found in what you do. Your identity is not found in how well you keep up the statutes of the law. Your identity is found in Christ. Jesus says, man, be in the world. But guess what? We realize we are not of the world. We are in Christ. We are children and heirs of the promise. You see, the problem is that we would rather war over what is down here and try to prove our worth rather than live out the identity we've been given in Christ. Well, let's continue by looking at what Paul says to finish out the chapter. Verse 27, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right, so what Paul does in continuing his argument is he quotes Isaiah 54.1. Which Isaiah 54.1 was a prophetic word given to those that were in Babylonian captivity 1,200 years after Abraham and 600 years before Paul was writing this letter. And it was during this exile, you see, the Israelites, man, everything looked bleak. They thought that their, they thought that everything was done for. They were lost and hopeless, while pagan nations seemed formidable and strong. You see, what God says to them through Isaiah is that it is only when they are weak and helpless that they will stop relying on self and begin to rely on God. See, this prophecy points back to Genesis 16 where there were two women, one beautiful and fertile, Hagar, and one old and barren, and yet God chooses to bring the salvation of the world through the barren one. For through Sarah, another unlikely child would one day be born, and through him all nations would be blessed. You see, in the same way the Galatian church has been polluted with the wrong idea that God can only use those who are fertile and performing well. I mean, did, how many of you like growing up in church like that's what you heard, right? God's only, he, he, he will only use those who put themselves together enough so he could actually use them. You see, the gospel is a different news entirely. You see, guess what? God doesn't care who you are or who you were. Grace is not just solely for the strong and put together that seem to be fertile by the standards of the world. It is for the weak. For even the strong must become, as Jesus says, like little children being born again into the family of God through the work of Jesus. 
For Jesus did not come and exert his strength by way of conquering foes with the sword and the bloodshed of his enemies. Rather, he came and conquered sin, death, and the grave by the shedding of his own blood. And what looked like weakness, but actually revealed the power and strength of God. For through death, life came. And in our lives, what we must realize is that it is only through the acknowledgement of weakness and inability and in the dying to the flesh that life comes. The question is, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do that before God, first and foremost? Today they say, God, man, I'm in deep and desperate need of your grace. I need it to be in front of me. But then secondly, are we willing to be that for one another? Say, hey, I'm in deep, desperate need. See, this week, I finally had to just go to Haley and I just had to say, hey, I'm struggling. And her response was, hey, I don't want you to be alone in this. I want you to be able to tell me this. I'm like, I want to. But guilt and shame, pride gets in my way. I think I can fix it. Or, man, one day, she just she's gonna get frustrated. And, and again, that that's again goes back to my belief about God as like one day God's just gonna say, Enough. I'm so tired of you not trusting me, Kyle. He doesn't say that ever. He continues to say, No, it's a process. And are we willing to go to one another and be weak? And if you can go to God and be weak, guess what? It's He knows everything. He's blameless. He's holy. But if you can learn to go to Him, guess what? Going to one another should be a heck of a lot easier. See, we must come to realize that we are children of promise only by way of grace and grace alone. What we also have to understand and be ready for is hearing this is that, man, a living life as children of God. We are always going to be threatened by those who seek to perform because grace alone threatens their pursuit of performance. Again, we said it last week, let the gospel be offensive. It's offensive enough and not you. that we would show a different way of living. Not that we would brandish all of our brokenness and it would just be like, hey, who can be the most broken person? But that we would just, man, I want to share with you when I'm celebrating. And I want to share with you and ask for help when I'm hurting. Because we need one another. So I want to call us to wrestle today. I'm going to have the team come back up. I mean, what I want us to wrestle with today is, are you living as a child of promise or a slave to the flesh? Are there areas in your life right now that you're like, I know God's going to do this, but I just need to help him some. He's not really going at the pace I want him to go. He's not really, maybe it's not looking the way I want it to look. So I'm just going to help him out some.
And today, have you turned back to being an orphan? Or are you clinging to your adoption? Do you believe yourself to be a child of God by what Jesus has done? Or are you still trying to prove yourself worthy to be a child? And I want us to wrestle with that. I want us to repent. I want us to, but I want us to rest in the fulfillment of what Jesus has done. That we can realize that, man, this is what God has done. This is the new life that I have. This is my hope. This is where it's found. Man, in doing that, man, I guess what? I can be weak because He's strong. And His strength is only made perfect in my weakness. His strength is perfected in my weakness. May we be a weak people that find strength in our understanding of the gospel. May we be children of freedom, not enslaved. May this bring us great. transformation that you've already begun, that you would reveal uh, to us, not the list of things that we need to do better or accomplish, but that you would uh, reveal to us how gracious and mighty and powerful you are and how you are the one that has it, that you have us. There's no law that needs to be fulfilled because you have fulfilled it. May our lives pursue holiness not out of acceptance, but in light of being accepted. May we cherish you and the church in such a way that we would be willing to say, Hey, I need help. Hey, I'm not finding my hope. Hey, I'm struggling. Hey, look, this is where we find victory, that we would be a celebratory people, both in the good and in the bad, because we have you and we have one another. Grow our hearts. Teach us more and more the reality that we are in Christ, that that we are seated with you. We are heirs to the promise that is good news. Give us hope. Give us strength. 